0: Badass lady that can get things done. She's the blood sister, and she's one tough nun. And if you think you can take her, I'll say hell no. Cause there ain't no man can beat Catholic Aikido. Yeah, there is one. There is one tough nun. She's in the habit for revenge. A penguin that'll peck your eyes out clean. She's gonna crack her ruler. Knuckles of this town Cause the Holy Spirit's Made her twice as mean This is Jesse Dram and you are listening to the I Hate Infinite Jess Podcast, episode 24, pages 682 to 716. Our guest this week is Jeff Anderson. He is a super fan of the book, read it about six times. He's also a former college DJ. I specifically wanted to talk to him about some of the Madame Psychosis stuff. Uh, you can find him at Tall Hefe on all the things. Um, be sure to check out my episode from the other day with my good friend Rusty Wright of the Sweet Heat Podcast. That is footnote number three. We discuss Big Red Sun, David Foster Wallace's ninety-eight venture to the ninety-eight AVN Awards. I'm being really sloppy this week. Hope you don't mind, guys. That was that was a long episode. and It was good, but I gotta I gotta roll. So I'm trying to get some stuff out there. Um, yeah, this week we talk about cool stuff. We somehow talk about new metal a lot. Uh, we talk about the the importance of literary moms. And how important it is that they get us into reading at a young age, we also talk about the different nicknames for genitals between men and women mm that's a that's a meaty mouthful of an episode. So go check it out, share like subscribe, tell people about us. We only got ten ten episodes left before we make our big conversion into whatever this is going to be. I haven't quite decided yet. Follow me at Mr. Jessico on YouTube uh Diamond Joe Quim on Reddit wasn't trying to be dirty, just ran out of letters, at Jesse Dram on all the other things, send me a message at jessiedram.com, check out specifically my uh, my YouTube and my Instagram this week, I, I did some comedy over the weekend, the video is not great, but the audio is good, and you know, here see, see if you like me as just a comic, and not a guy pooping on a book that you like so much, it also looks like I have a show November... 14th, 16th? I don't know. I'll, I'll look into that, but it's going to be Cricket Comedy. That'll be at Workhorse Brewing in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. If you guys want to come out and see me tell some jokey jokes, that'd be a good time to do it. If you are in the Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania area. If you're not, King of Prussia sounds like a weird place for a city, but no, you have to go there and pledge a loyalty to the actual King of Prussia. I think his name is Larry. Larry Larry of Prussia. But yeah, really cool place. So that's me. That's this episode. At Jesse Dram at all the things. At Tall Hefe for this, guys. Uh, Listen to the Sweet Heat podcast featuring Rusty Wright and Jeff Colella. Guys, I am going to go visit my mother-in-law in Princeton. Hell yeah. If you're ever in Princeton, go to go to Olives. They they make incredible hummus, and we're gonna go get it. All right, that's this week's episode. Bye. Alright, guys, here we are. I hate Infinite Jest, episode twenty-four. Train kept a rolling. We are on pages six eighty-two to seven sixteen. Our guest this week, Mister Jeff Anderson. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Jesse? I'm doing pretty, pretty good. I'm a little, I'm a little more hungover than most episodes. Ah, but, uh, that, that that happens. I somehow ended up at like a very. I ended up in a very conservative part of Pennsylvania last night doing stand-up. And I told nothing, <laughs> nothing but anti-Trump jokes and I got them to like me somehow. So I feel, I feel pretty good. I'm, I'm, I am hung over with acceptance. Uh,
1: that's, that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, it's a pretty good Saturday. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's about as good as it gets. All right. So Jeff, uh, tell us who you are, what you do, where we can find you online. If that's something you would like to be found for.
1: Uh, my name's Jeff. I'm just, a. An infinite jest fan who's been listening to the show. Uh it can be found online at tall hefe on Twitter. And that is about it. That's
0: T-A-L-L-J-E-F-E. All right. Now you gotta tell me there must be some kind of origin of tall hefe.
1: <laughs> uh well I'm six foot four and uh Oh, you know, okay. in middle and in the middle school, when we're in Spanish class uh, with the name Jeff, you just get called Hefe a whole bunch.
0: There you go. I was gonna say I wouldn't. I wouldn't have pegged you as six four. Right up. Well, first I wouldn't have pegged you just to be polite, but uh, I would say the Zoom doesn't really give that height thing. <laughs> it's. I have a, I have a cousin of mine. He has a friend named Shemp. And I remember, like, just recently, like, why why do you guys call him that anyway? Like, oh, because we were in marching band together, and his name was Jason, but there were already two other Jasons, so we just called him Shemp. And somehow that lifelong, like, one of my brother's friends is still named Taco, based on, like, a kindergarten nickname that just somebody gave him.
1: And it, it, it's funny. I mean, I think, actually, Infinite Jest kind of highlights the fact that sometimes nicknames, like, you can't give them to yourself, and sometimes they just... uh the origin story is kind of kind of boring
0: oh yeah yeah (laughs) um so uh didn't you tell me that you were like a former radio dj as well
1: yeah if i'm if i'm being self-aggrandizing i used to volunteer for a local radio station here in colorado kdnk where they really will allow anybody in the (laughs) booth to play whatever the hell they want so
0: I mean, honestly, when you're young, that just sounds like the best thing in the world, though. Like, yeah, I just get to I I get to play anything I want, and people they don't have to listen. But like, if their radio dials stuck on this, then yes, they do have to listen to me. Um, yeah,
1: and if you're willing to stay up past the uh, past 10 p.m. and do some of those late night shifts, you actually don't even have to deal with the FCC regulations. You can just kind of let loose. Nice.
0: Well, see, that's what I actually wanted to get to a little, bit, and it made me interested to have you on. Um, for whatever reason, the entire concept of Madame Psychosis really doesn't. I, I never got it. I never understood it. And I, I, I have a passing interest in radio. I have a, a friend who is a professional DJ out in Wisconsin uh, on some one of the 47 KISS FM's that exist in, in the country. Yep. But, uh, yeah, what did you think of the entire idea of Madame Psychosis just coming from even even a a novice radio background cuz to me it's like I couldn't I couldn't imagine anything like that being on the air. What what was your take?
1: <laughs> uh you know, it's it's interesting. I think I think uh Madame Psychosis is sort of like a you know, I've I've heard on on this show and I've thought of it in relation to Infinite Jest like This this is sort of like a South Park cartoony send up. And I would I would almost see Madame Psychosis as shit like like a really terrible talk radio host, Um, but almost so terrible that it's compelling, you know, like. There, there's a there's a whole uh there's a mention and I don't know if it's happened yet um where they talk about some of her dark periods of like just reading Brett Easton Ellis on on air <laughs> like it was like three straight weeks weeks <laughs> okay sorry spoiler alert
0: no no, no that's not, that's not, I'm actually well I'm I'm a little intrigued I had no idea we actually got into Brett Easton Ellis knowing that uh, him and David Foster Wallace were not the best of chums so.
1: yeah and I and I think it was sort of like he He puts Ellis in you know Joel's voice just to make it,
0: it
1: highlights how um how grim it was and and you know like overall yeah they had this like in real life feud about what kind of you know what kind of earnestness and irony should be in in literature and and what what you know, constitutes good literature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that was a, a vehicle in the book for him to just, you know, again, go kind of cartoony and and send a little jab uh mm-hmm. to one of his quote unquote rivals way.
0: Okay. See, I uh I have no idea how many artists we have listening to this particular show, but I can tell you as somebody who's been obviously you're listening to a podcast, I'm creating. So at least on that level I am an artist. But uh really just how hard the temptation is to like not settle scores and in insult your enemies at every uh i remember i worked on an independent film and me and the director and the star were recording a commentary track and we just got really drunk doing it and halfway through i'm like yelling about old girlfriends from back in the day and like you thought i wasn't good enough listen to me now it's it is really hard to not show your ass once you feel you have anybody ready to listen to you so
1: <laughs> you know you get that you get that little platform you get a little drunk on like oh people are going to listen to this shit and so yeah i think he mm-hmm. and and i you know madam psychosis is like i don't know it's almost even like a commentary on just like the loneliness of you're trying to create something but she's also trying to hide behind you know and and it's interesting like behind an audio format um to to make this commentary about the you know being being veiled being hidden um trying to like maintain some sort of anonymity even while she was like you know descending into her crack use. Mm
0: And there is also, I'm sure there's something in there about hiding yourself from the world while simultaneously broadcasting yourself to the world as well, so. Yep. So how did you uh, discover the book in the first? What is, like, your literary background? Are you, are you, like, you just read a few things and this book got you out of nowhere, or are you a voracious reader and this is one of many things that are in your worldview?
1: Uh, I, I hope to imagine myself as the latter. Um, I, I would I would pinpoint the moment that that literature really entered my life and and as a musician, you might you might appreciate this. I, I checked out of uh, the local library when I was a kid the Crash Test Dummies album with that with that terrible like low voice song. But one of the lines in it was about measuring afternoons in coffee spoons. And my mom heard me listening to it, and she I mean, I was in like second grade and she checked out t.s. Eliot for me. From the library and like made me read the love song of Jay Alfred Proofrock.
0: <laughs> okay. That is that is a good literary mom right there. Oh yeah. I think, we, her... I, I think we need to stop right now and give a shout out to all the literary moms because <laughs> it's something I literally did not think about it until you mentioned it, but it's those kind of like on the ball moms that are like, Oh, I recognize that lyric from something. You should read this. Because yeah. otherwise that would you that would have flitted right by you and who knows what would have happened.
1: Exactly. And you know, I'm like, what, eight or nine. And my mom is like, here, read, read some T.S. Eliot. Um, But it was, you know, after that, I, I I just read everything I could. I mean, I loved Tolkien. Uh, When I got into high school, I I loved um, Dennis Johnson and Isabel Allende and um, just, just read whatever really I could. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, when I got to college, uh, and, and how I found Infinite Jest is I, I started uh, dating this woman my sophomore year of college and uh, she was uh, leaps and bounds uh, better read and smarter than I was and she actually told me to read the book. So it's kind of the, the opposite of the uh, the cultural ideas around this book of douchey dudes recommending it to their uh, girlfriends. Uh, my girlfriend recommended it to me and the first time I read it, I hated it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Those, those lit girls always shoving David Uh, Foster Wallace (laughs) down. You just don't understand it yet. Read it, read it a fourth time. Sorry. (laughs) So you didn't like it at first?
1: I I didn't. I, I, I actually, I, (laughs) I remember it really clearly. I read pretty much the whole thing, um, in about three weeks and I was in actually Wenham, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. Um, and I just I just sat down and read the whole dang thing. I was like, I'm gonna just force myself to get through this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, to to echo all of the annoying cliches about this book out there, like I finished it, and I was like, shit, I have to read this book again, <laughs> <laughs> um, just to just to even like understand it. Like I had always been attracted to more like even you know, Dennis Johnson has really simple language and Hemingway. Like I loved kind of that more like gut punch kind of literature Mm -hmm. and with this being so freaking vast I I was pissed that I had to read it again um (laughs) but
0: but but I did you were were intrigued (laughs) enough that you felt the need to
1: I, I was and then you know over over the years um I uh I have read this book now six times cover to cover um and a big part of that for me was that i um i got sober in 2015 Mm -hmm. and through the process of that like it it just kept popping up into my into my head about like this book gave me such great context while i was like hating aa and trying to Mm -hmm. trying to get my shit together and it really changed my my recovery at that point um it was it was this great kind of comfortable thing it was like a meeting without having to go to a meeting um
0: it it, it must give you an interesting frame of reference for well that i'm i'm putting this to you but really i'm talking about myself it gives an interesting frame of reference because even somebody like me who uh like i said i've had family in the program that where it's just on the peripheral it did kind of like solidify a lot of the stuff i saw there that now when i think despite having been to actual aa meetings i think of the book like i i saw the crocodiles in person before i ever even thought of the crocodiles and it took reading the book like oh those guys yes 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 yes. yeah
1: and uh it there's such a great um Kind of example of the the crotchety old timer in AA who mm-hmm. you know I, and I think it, it might even be mentioned in, in the book but it's like my experience with AA was like wanting to know how AA works like mm-hmm. how the fuck does this work how is this going to get me sober and these insufferable old guys looking you dead in the face and they're like it works just fine mm-hmm. and you're like that's the, that's the, that's the worst <laughs> cop-out answer there is and, um, you know, it was one of the recent episodes that you covered. It's like the cake analogy. Like if you just follow the fucking directions on the box of cake, you're going to end up with a cake. Right. And-
0: a, a, a few, a few generations of cake makers have solidified, had, have put this down. So even a dummy like you can figure it out, maybe quit questioning the cake makers. And before asking, well, how does this make a cake? How about you try it? Exactly. Right all right well shit that's uh that's interesting you got you got a lot of stuff coming into this So i'm looking forward to this I, you um, know yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we can get into our notes for this week um we start on probably the worst thing i've read in the book so far yep was... <laughs> Eesh. okay so again for those listening we are doing 682 to 716 we're opening on November 14th, year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. We meet Matty Pemulis, who uh, isn't stated out rightly, but I can assume is the brother of Michael. Yep. He is at a Portuguese restaurant in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He is 23 years old and a prostitute. His father, who often told him to wipe that smile off his face, died when he was 17 of a pancreatic thing. Out the window, he sees various people, including a terrible-looking, poor Tony Krause, noticeable only for his trademark boa and red leather coat. Uh, David drops very bluntly that Maddie's dad began anally raping him when he was ten. I might, I might put some fun music behind this to try and uh, <laughs> going up the country, baby, don't you wanna come? Uh, <laughs> While some people's psyches are merciful enough to let them block out familial sexual assault, Maddie remembers them vividly with the disgusting quote, he remembered every inch and pimple of every single time. Gross. Um, Strange caresses from father to son that were just imperceptibly over the line for a large, drunken Irish father. Uh... I, I feel terrible that I can actually relate in the most innocent of ways because I had my own drunken Irish dad who I remember would tossle my hair, but had kind of, kind of, let's say he had the strength of a certain kind of people we're not allowed to say anymore. And uh, Lenny from Mice and Men might be a good one. Uh, to this day, I do not like my hair being tossed or my shoulders being rubbed because I just remember my dumb Irish dad, like, crushing my six-year-old shoulders like that feels good right i saw this on tv once
1: <laughs> yeah i mean this this section is grim um yeah and it gives one of the things that i i really love about love that's a that's a rough word to use one of the things no, 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 that you is, were
0: saying the thing you love about anal raping children <laughs> Continue.
1: um is the way that david foster wallace like he puts these words in in the pemulous Daz mouth about like not even being able to admit that what he's doing is is awful. Like he he starts accusing Maddie of like what do you want to call me? Uh, and he never uses the word like uh, you know homosexual yeah. or yeah, we know what you're going for yeah. exactly. And it's um you know overall it, this section. Just in retrospect, like when you look back about uh, Mike, like curled up facing the wall, being Mm. in the room for this over and over and over and over, like puts puts Pemulus in this whole new kind of Mm. characterization um, that that makes him a lot more. I don't know. It makes him really complex, and it makes him a a, an interesting foil to. you know the incandenza family where Mm -hmm. uh, you
0: know Avril is
1: probably the the issue
0: (laughs) right and also major helicopter parent it it would be easy up until this context to consider pemulus just like smart alecky dickhead street smart kid it's kind of it's like that thing you only learn when you get older that uh like, the bully at school who's, like, very physical. Like, maybe it's not a great idea to fight him back, because if he's fighting everybody at school, there's a very good chance he's gotten used to dodging a grown man's fists. Exactly. And that's the real background of that. Um, And, yeah, that is, it's, it's crazy how he does that delusional, like, psychological pirouette into being okay with, like, it would be humorous, almost, if it was anything else. Like, like if he had a sweet tooth and like oh so you're looking at, well if i if i'm such a big sweet tooth i guess i'll just eat all this cake then except the cake is fucking his son and yep oh god
1: i know and it's you know in in the kind of in memory like you you pointed out at the beginning matt remembers all of this he doesn't suppress any of this like it's but, all out on the table um and, you know, despite everything and despite the really fucking grim details, like he's he's uh, presented as someone who actually kind of has his shit together in a way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: at least at least psychically, <laughs> where he's, you know, he's he's not escaping into his substance. And he's actually observing poor Tony through the window, who is just like in literal flight
0: from his mm-hmm. addiction. Right. So yeah, I'm I'm curious what we're going to see more of him. Um. Yeah, I I I have more notes here, but honestly, that the it, it, we we've pretty much gotten it. We don't need the details of the petroleum jelly and. The, yeah, we we
1: don't need to go into, into the. It it's it's a, it's an interesting sentence though, where he he calls it the stone in pond plop of a Vaseline cap, which is just, yeah, it's good writing in a in a fucking cringeworthy way (laughs) yeah
0: well i mean when you can hear the actual sound in your head because i I think everybody knows what that sounds like and just a little like no thank you yep Um, diopemulus later died choking on aspirated blood a fountain of dark blood that stained everything about it maddie held his father's yellowed wrist while his mother ran for help he still drinks a toast to his father's memory on his first shot and whoever is writing the footnotes wonders aloud where mrs pemulus was during these late night activities yeah i don't know if my audience is particular to new metal but uh if you really want to ruin your day go listen to the song daddy off of corn's first album which is <laughs> pretty much this so if if, yep. if 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 children being raped wasn't enough for you let's let, let's let's put a catchy tune behind it i I,
1: i've been loving your comparison of of uh david foster wallace's writing to prog rock like (laughs) like fucking just showing off and so this we'll just call this the new metal uh section
0: (laughs) there you go yeah this is david foster wallace the new metal years (laughs) It, it just shows my own weird frame of reference um So okay, I'm gonna give something weird to the crowd here, but whatever, it's interesting. (laughs) So the thing about aspirating blood, um, I've I've seen this. There there used to be a Reddit called uh, a a Reddit sub called Watch People Die. Gonna be honest, people, I've checked it out. Not I have my own horrible fear of death, and just like a lot of anxious people, you just feel like if I do enough research, I'll be ready when it comes for me. But I remember there was a particular video of like a Chinese bus driver. And what happens is these people, they get so fucked up that they break and and, and an aneurysm happens like in their aorta bleeds out into their esophagus and they literally just like high propulsion jet stream blood everywhere. And it's considered one of the worst ways to die. And it's fucking bonkers. And I think this is, you know, I might've actually brought this up. Uh, I think Pemulus maybe dropped something earlier that this is how his dad died, because I think this isn't the first time I brought this up.
1: It's it, it's not, and it's actually, I believe it's, uh, it's Gately's mom. That's it. Gately's okay, I, knew,
0: is, I yep. knew it came up somewhere else, but uh, yeah, horrifying way to die. Maybe don't Google it. Maybe do Google it. Whatever helps you sleep a little better at night. Um, okay, November 11th, you're the dependent adult undergarment. We are back at Enfield. First thing after supper, Hal drops in on Stitt to discuss several things regarding his earlier exhibition with Tice. What went wrong? Why set this up so publicly, so close to the Whataburger tournaments? He finds only a shirtless Dilint in the office going over charts and notes from the match. Neither mention the presence of Steeply during the game. Hal retreats to the viewing room where he watches several of his father's avant-garde film cartridges, where we will spend a lot of this episode. Anyone viewing this scene would assume Hal is depressed. He watches half of Medusa versus, Medusa versus Adelisk before he turns it off when the audience starts turning to stone. He watches Wave Bye-Bye to the Bureaucrat, which I think this might be as in-depth a description as we get of any of James James's films, where we get like the actual beat by beat. Um, so a bureaucrat whose work is great, but his chronic lateness is an insult to bureaucracy is threatened with termination if he's late again so the bureaucrat and his wife gather every alarm clock in the house only to have a power outage and he's late anyway as somebody who is chronically late i know this struggle so much
1: oh yeah the the setting every single alarm clock that you possibly can to to try to make sure that mm-hmm. you're gonna make it
0: setting six alarms on your phone three Yep. Minutes apart. yep. <laughs> Uh the only the only good thing about covid and losing my job has been like oh th- this is what it's like to actually get enough sleep every night. I I never knew this. Um okay, he rushes. Oh, go ahead.
1: Oh yeah, no, I was just I was going to hop in. I mean, it's it's um the, this whole first part of this section we're going through today um is is this like obsession with with time almost? Mm. Um where Even at the beginning of the of the Matt Pemmulus part, he um he talks about he describes Tony Krause as never so much walking as making an infinite series of grand entrances into pocket after pocket of space or time, like this grand entrance. And then when we when we get to Hal, um Delint tells him, You just never occurred out freaks him out like he doesn't even exist. And and the and then we go straight into this long description of this film where like the only way that this bureaucrat can define his like kind of worth at the beginning is 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 his job performance and being on time and mm. and like having that just explode like all of this is like about <laughs> things falling apart for mm-hmm. for lack of a better description
0: well not to that's mention a... even we, we permanently associate poor tony with time traveling in his own way too because that's what it was so visually described as his entire uh, kicking in the bathroom stall exactly hmm. um so he rushes madingly to try to make the last possible train to make it in time he jumps down the steps and collides with a child in glasses and bow tie Hal recognized the kid from another film as well, and it is severely distressing to him that he can't remember the kid's name. Surely a side effect of never being sober for longer than 24 hours in over a year. The bureaucrat is torn between catching the train on time and helping the kid up and picking up his packages. After an internal moment of conflict, he helps the kid and leaves the train without him, leading to the child to ask as he walks away, "Mr. are you Jesus? To which the bureaucrat responds, Don't I wish. He walks away as the child waves at him. This is Mario's favorite of uh, himself's films for its blatant earnestness. Hal tells Mario it's sentimental goo, but Hal secretly likes it as well.
1: No, and, and this is like, you know, you've you've covered it on the podcast already, but David Foster Wallace like really wanting to be earnest mm-hmm. and and trying to get away from irony and. And this film is, you know, as as Hal would describe it, is just sentimental goo. Um, But Hal is, you know, Hal's struggling, and he secretly likes it. And Mario, who's sort of just this, like, pure watcher, um, Mm. is, you know, he's unafraid to say that this is is one of his dad's favorite films. Or, Mm. you know, it's what, like, he just loves it. And I think that that's really important to... Kind of get away from you know even though that this whole section is written in this really kind of ironic and erudite way Mm -hmm. um at the end it's like summed up by like well but they both really secretly like the fact that it's got this
0: gooey sentimental Mm -hmm. ending well there also might be a bit to it which is uh, uh you know what i'll actually jump ahead and talk about that just because it's not really specific to actually never mind it's for the long, point is at some point we're going to get deeper into um the the idea that like art is made by these world weary people but then it's picked up by children who are also trying to like they're just trying to figure out what's cool so they have none of the experience of world weariness but they interpret it as hip so they go for that and i do yep. think there is uh, there's some truth to the notion that even though like I mean, yeah, you know, the the oldest advice you would give a teenager to being cool is to like not care and seem unaffected. But the truth behind everything is we really are feeling everything, and you know maybe that's where I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, Hal watches a few more cartridges, including a posthumous film we will spend more time with later. Blood Sister, one tough nun, which Hal is unaware the idea came from himself. One attempt with Boston AA for two months before being turned off by the God stuff and the dogma. Yeah, I still I still haven't done it yet, but I might I might write a Blood Sister song today. I don't know. We will see. <laughs> uh,
1: I support that. That would that would be that would
0: be an epic song. Well, I guess I have to do it now. <laughs> um, all right. You can just edit that out. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's a, it. One of the only things that keep me sane is I keep the editing of this podcast down to a bare minimum, just because I'm the I'm literally the only person involved that, that does anything with this. So the less work I make for myself, the better. Um, okay, November fourteenth, depend adult undergarment. Poor Tony Krause awakens from his bus seizure in an ambulance. Since Tony has no health insurance, the doctors don't mind at all when he decides to up and leave as soon as he can. Poor Tony feels great, as one tends to feel post seizure. He he doesn't really dwell on it too much, but particularly in these modern times where we're discussing health insurance and the pros and cons all the time. I do love that he kind of puts it that everybody knows, like, you know, sir, you're not ready. You're you're not healthy yet. Please. Everybody's seen the action movie where the guy's like ripping the things off. Like, I got I got to go get Mendoza or whatever. But now here's this guy who has, you know, a transvestite drug addict, no health insurance. And he's doing the same thing. They're like, yeah, no. Well, OK, you know, you you know, your body best. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, fire Con Dios. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're not getting paid for this one. Um, Tony and other ladies did work for the Antitois brothers. They had to wear identical red leather coats and Auburn wigs and high heels and hang around a hotel in Harvard Square, while a man in the same outfit ran inside and threw foul-smelling liquid on ONAN politicians and allow him to slip away amongst the doppelgangers. So we get a lot of information in that. First off, we find out that... Uh, Tony's trademark leather coat and wig and high heels is actually from a costume he was given along with several other people and I do like this kind of payoff as when we first get the description of the Antitois brothers they're like they're technically terrorists but really they're nuisances at best yep and the major Quebecois are like why are you wasting your fucking time on this so to to see that like yeah let's let's hide amongst transvestites and throw like stink bombs at people basically (laughs)
1: it's yeah i mean all of these little sort of like political breadcrumbs that that we get along the way are are so interesting because like it gives us a little more context on the antitois brothers um and you know the the sort of intersection of like this addiction world like this this drug crew and um and the politics of it and it, it kinda like harkens back to the the time where the Antitois brothers weren't untethered from um you know their their sort of handler, their terrorist handler. Um mm-hmm. which uh again I don't wanna I don't wanna like throw spoilers out there but no,
0: no um, I think we know at this point that it's uh it's it's the Canadian VIP. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah the yeah. duplessis the 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 guy that Gately actually mm-hmm. you know smothers. And and so you you start to get all this like all of these Threads are are beginning to come together, um, and and a little more context of of like the the weirdness of this Canadian insurgency.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're definitely starting to see more and more of the uh, ties that bind everyone together. As it kind of, it's almost like a cat's cradle thing. It's like pulling the stitching in, and yep. uh, uh, it's it's pretty cool. I'll be honest. Um, so. Tony is tempted by multiple women walking in front of him with spaghetti strap purses. He wants to steal one and sell it to the Antitois brothers rather than just beg for charity. Uh, next little section here. Jeffrey Day, we're back at Ennit. It infuriates me that he named the two places Enfield and Ennit, so similarly. <laughs> um, Jeffrey Day notes how the men of Ennit tend to have names for their genitals. Lenz calls it the Frightful Hog. Glenn's is Poor Richard. This might be a class thing. Neither Day, nor Yule, nor Erdity have these names. Um, okay, I don't know. I, I remember being a teenager. I don't remember the name, but I remember we had names. It's, it's a thing that happens at a point. Uh, it, it, you so. know, it is, it is a thing. It, it, I didn't mention in the intro, but I, I studied
1: linguistics um, in, in college, and I actually took a class on, on gender and language and there there have been like whole studies about um nicknames or slang in reference to genitalia and how like if you look at like the the men's list of of you know johnson unit all of the things that are mm-hmm. you know are constantly in this book um compared to the number of slang terms for female genitalia and it's like you know the men's list is hundreds and hundreds of of terms Mm -hmm. and the women's Mm -hmm. and and usually pretty grim and violent to be totally honest and it and yeah (laughs) and it's like it it highlights this fact that you know and and you've even talked about this book in terms of like you know the the me too movement and the Mm -hmm. problematic aspects of, of David Foster Wallace and and it's almost like he's obliquely addressing the fact that even our language is 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 racist, is misogynistic. And and we actually get a little bit of that later in our section, but like he, right. the the trickiness of of language and description and how that can, you know, change the way that we understand things. And, it, and this is the first time in the book, and I think maybe the last time in the book where uh, you, you might actually, you know, one might have a, a bit of empathy for Jeffrey Day because other than this, he's freaking insufferable.
0: Yes, yes he is. <laughs> know that's a funny thing to think of i never really considered the fact that women just don't have as much slang for their own genitals but i think that just goes to how much is uh i mean not only just physically it's mostly hidden away but i've heard from like so many women in my life not like family or anything but just like girls just like oh yeah i had no idea there was like i I thought there was a little hole for peeing and like like the the fact the fact that you wouldn't even know your own equipment, and I can understand how that would lead to like I remember there was one girl that called it a quiver, which was just I mean it's it's accurate I guess but <laughs> really not nice. I remember one particular girl referred to it as her as her bunny, which was uh, okay. May- maybe it's part of the reason I have bunny rabbits to this day. I I don't know.
1: <laughs> we we could get Freudian on this if we really want to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I just like to nuzzle a bunny to my face every now and again and (laughs) tell it how much I love it and kiss it sweetly. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, Lenz's penis has been brandished at other... and I I just love the word brandished for a penis. Uh, Brandished at other Ennit members to make a point. Several shades darker than his skin and a victim of the Polish curse, aka a chode, short and thick. Um yeah as somebody who is polish and has gotten some kielasa this week i will say no more than that uh uh, day is noting all this because lens has been discharged from ennit and day finds himself missing the old scumbag now that he's stuck with uber boring yule as a roommate instead so i feel like that whole section is really just to tell us that lens is gone
1: um Yes, that he has been invited to ingest substances elsewhere.
0: <laughs> 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 uh, fucking lens. Okay, so this is what I hit on a little bit before. We get in a weird discussion of uh, depression and the different lef- levels, initially in relation to Gompert. Low depression is called anhedonia, en- 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 which I guess will be our word of the week, uh, AKA simple melancholy, the loss of pleasure and formerly pleasurable things. This is the bowler who sells his ball and stays home. The musician that sells their guitar. Uh, Specifically, I had a friend who his big thing was he just loved going to live events, whether it be like movies or concerts or whatever. And when he got in big depressions, the hint was always he would be trying to sell these tickets for things that were months away just because he could not imagine giving a fuck about them. I and mean, you know, not like it matters.
1: Yep. Yeah, when, when everything that you, you know, come to enjoy becomes rote and, and meaningless and boring. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and, and yeah, you touched on this. This is like the, the discussion of, of art being like, like we, we, I guess we emulate this, this really hip art that sometimes tends to be you know I I, no offense to any Radiohead fans out there but this is like this is like my generation that grew up on Radiohead is like Mm. it's like that I have to be too cool even though some of it is kind of insufferable and erudite and boring and (laughs) Mm. (laughs) yeah I mean it's like we we learn this this affect to just be like yeah nothing matters man and Mm-hmm. We might as well just embrace the weirdness of it and and be down about it and i think that that's like a really interesting commentary you know especially from just just about the art of the time um mm-hmm. was like we we're trying to be so self self-refer- referential and and smart about everything that that we lose the like emotional impact that mm-hmm. art can actually have
0: yeah there's uh, there's a few things there particularly when it comes to I, I feel like there is a lot of art telling us how to feel um like i mentioned i mentioned corn earlier in there i was i I was thirteen when corn really broke, so I was like exactly their demographic but uh honestly looking back now i'm I'm a little indignant that that was kind of i i hate to be like an old fuddy duddy think of the children but like I was kind of sold sadness porn at the time i was most vulnerable to it like you know fucking papa roach don't give a fuck if i cut my arm bleeding like dude you're almost 30 and teenagers are going to cut themselves because they think this is what cool guys are supposed to do like that's that's a little fucking gross Uh,
1: yeah i mean i i think that that was that was my high school years it was it was corn and Lincoln Park and Papa Roach and mm. you know moving into like Thursday and Taking Back Sunday and like the the quote unquote mm. emo scene and and yeah we we were raised on this like it, sadness porn yeah. like yeah you can scream about it and it's cool and and it's so
0: grim <laughs> yeah that's, I I feel like some of it some of it I still like I like Thursday uh, despite being a metalhead I loved my Chemical Romance from jump just cuz and I remember my friends like oh, they're just ripping off Queen like yeah nobody really ripped off Queen and more bands should have like that big operatic shit but like they they always had like an optimism to their music Compare that to somebody like Hawthorne Heights where it was literally it to cut my wrists and black my eyes like dude you're supposed to be subtle with this for God's sake yeah. <laughs> And uh, I I remember a a comedian I love, Kurt Metzger, was talking about how um, you don't realize that so much of this stuff that's out in the world is made by like super rich New York City kids with super rich parents who they're world weary because like they've done everything. These are like New York City people. When you're like born and raised there, these are like the rich kids who get over a coke problem when they're 14. You know, he. It, he describes them as like vampires. They're like these small children, but they, they can't drive or swim somehow. But, ugh. um, you know, we're actually we're actually putting the cart ahead of the horse here because this comes. Oh, we we might have jumped ahead. <laughs> um, th- 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 gompert feels it at emotions stripped to abstracts. You know what happiness is, but you can't feel it in any palpable way. Everything becomes an outline. In Boston AA, the terms uh, inability to identify. Younger Enfield kids attribute JOI's suicide to anhedonia, which tends to affect otherwise well-accomplished people. Pardon me, This is inaccurate and indicative of a problem with the kids themselves. The fact that achievement doesn't equal happiness is still alien and abstract to them at this age. I, I love this line he puts here, that they imagine the number two ranked in their division feels precisely double as good as the kid ranked at number four. Which is a very... It's a very childish, but very accurate notion when you're a little kid you think like yeah that the 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 person everybody is paying attention to must feel great all the time
1: yeah i mean it's like that idea of value like where where do i rank and if i rank high enough i'm gonna be that much happier and Mm -hmm. i mean in this this whole section is about like when you get to that you know your achievement level that plateau you're gonna there's absolutely no guarantee that you're going to feel any different um mm-hmm. from the outside it might look different but you know that feeling on the inside which he really dives into in this section about like what depression and anhedonia mm-hmm. can feel like um that you know we we have this disconnect with like what what people perceive from the outside and what we're feeling on the inside which is i think why in this section um there's such a focus on describing the films because film Mm -hmm. and it's very nature can only, can only be in this like outside observation. Mm -hmm. And, and so diving into these outside observations to try to get to some sort of internal feeling Mm -hmm. is like the, is like the dilemma, the double bind in, in James trying to express emotions by, by just documenting and looking at things.
0: Right. Um, I left off a little note there. It's noted that lower ranked kids do tend to be happier, which does not surprise me even a little. Uh, Hal believes he is empty and his major skill is convincing everybody but himself there's actually a person living inside his head. Hal feels alone, which uh, I I like. I don't know if you're aware of this. I I still look up on like 4chan every now and again, which I I maintain is like just a, I want to see what the animals have to say right now like the the racist 12 year olds just shouting the n-word into the ether but there is a concept that's going around that i don't know how seriously anybody takes it but they refer to it as a npc theory so npc is a video game term it means non-playable character so literally just somebody you interact with but like they have no agency or whatever but one of the theories that these people have that kind of shows just how isolated they are is uh, some of them actually try to divide religion into it. But the religious one, okay. I'll go with the religious term because it makes more sense. There's so many people in the world, there can't be this many souls going around. So like 50% of people you meet, there's actually nobody inside them. Like there's nobody manning the ship. They are a non-playable character. And uh, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, it kind of goes back to like Vonnegut with uh, Breakfast of Champions. Everybody's a robot but him.
1: Yep. So. no and and you'll uh, again we're we're jumping ahead in the book a little bit you'll get to it that actually is a really big concern in kind of the last part of infinite jest yeah. and there's actually this long description of of james making these films where you know he he's talking about like cheers and like the fact that the other people at the bar are there and they're having conversations and like they don't matter at all mm-hmm. and he started making these films where um he gave equal audio to every single person on the soundstage and they were just insufferable because it's just like, you know, it's just, it's just like a film of like a noisy bar. Mm. Um, and even at, at Ennett, there's a, a scene where one of the, one of the people who hang around there is trying to describe that there are only, you know, seven real people in the world and everything else is like the fucking matrix. Like, right. Like that idea that we are or, or can perceive other people as 100% robotic and like mm-hmm. just just their outsides.
0: Right. And that, that goes all the way back to just the problem of consciousness in general is we, we, cannot, know, we cannot know other minds. Like I know, I know what red looks like to me, but I cannot be prob- certain that red looks the same to anybody else. And that, uh, I mean, that's a big part of the thing that makes us feel alone in the first place is that uh, Dave Foster Wiles actually says it in This Is Water, and I think it's great. It's like, my entire body is wired to tell me I am the exact center of the universe. That's that's what existence is. Yep. (laughs) Okay, so this gets into pretty much what we've talked about already. Uh, Very, very 90s discussion, like grunge era idea romanticized as the German word Weltschmerz, which I guess is another word of the week. Uh, Try to use it in a sentence. Weltschmerz, hip world weariness. The classic 90s Kurt Cobain, it's all bullshit, man, from a man you consider to be a a wise and grizzled guru, as opposed to a junkie who has never enjoyed anything in life. I think that might be my own note. I didn't italicize it like I typically do, but... The art is made by older, world-weary people and consumed by younger people who use it to determine what is hip and what is cool and then affect it. To be cool is to be unalone. Hal theorizes this hatred of sentiment is a fear of really being human. To be open and sincere and earnest and to feel is to make oneself a gooey, whimpering baby." Uh, yeah, I, I've actually thought about, well, hold on, I'll give the little description. In JOI's American History Through the Lens of a Brick, there's a shot of a piano string that is muted by a thumb. Later, the thumb is removed and the string rings out, only to become louder and somehow rotten, to the point that it sounds like a note begging to be thumbed out again. Yeah, a just, a,
1: just a quick little dive in. That, that, uh, that thumb is, if I'm remembering correctly, that's the first appearance of Joel in any oh uh james film is it's her thumb that that pushes down on the string
0: (laughs) interesting hidden from day one nice um yeah so one of the things i really like about that is oh yeah okay i remember reading and this is something i've given a lot of thoughts to um when i become a father if i have a son just because my dad was extremely masculine and wanted me to be extremely masculine despite the fact that I took after my mother emotionally and not him and That that caused some trouble. But I remember I read something once and I feel like this would be an important thing to teach kids at a young age where like boys are taught that crying is such a bad thing. If you go back and read like old folklore, like Beowulf and shit like that, apparently there's like stuff with the protagonist crying all the time. Like, to and that being like a, an old symbol of like manhood and masculinity, that he cares so much about this plight that it has infected him personally. And I don't know, I feel like it, you wonder how much of this because it could seem like to be world weary and unaffected is kind of a defense mechanism that like maybe is good to human survival for all we know. But then you hear something like that, and like, okay, maybe that wasn't always the case, you, you never know if you're feeling something because this is human nature or it's because of this particular blip of where you are in history.
1: And, and I don't know if we can know, and that's like, that's one of the big themes here, is like, and it is, it goes back to that this is water thing, like all we, all we really have is, is this like literally self-centered experience of, of reality. Mm-hmm. And when we're raised in this way, we're yeah, I mean that that's one of the things that I uh, you hear over and over and over in recovery is like you can you can cry, you can show your emotions because I think that addiction is so like inextricably tied up with that desire to appear okay. like i'm I got my shit under control. I got this, um, where not, not, you know, not only
0: that, but a, a lot of that can come from childhood where like, uh you know if things aren't okay where like just lying to yourself and saying it's okay is the only thing that keeps you not terrified exactly and and that's like the the double bind of
1: of addiction for so many people is like yeah substances were fun and they were the fucking solution until they're not right and like and once they're not then you're then you're at that jumping off place as as
0: L. Irwin come in and plop down. Hal complains he came here to be alone. They retort that a public common room without locks isn't a great place to do that. <laughs> Some more girls stick their head in and mention to Hal there's a gigantic woman in the hall looking for him. So very, very abrupt perspective change where we just pull right back to Hal after all this being set up with Maddie and poor Tony and now uh, Gompert and Cleve walking somewhere. Yep, and
1: and it's one of those it's one of those sections.
0: He's really starting to pull
1: all of these sort of disp- um, pieces into into the into the narrative. So like we're getting we're getting kids from from the tennis academy, we're getting um we're getting Lyle, we're we're getting this view of of Ennett House, you know, residents walking down the street and and they're all breadcrumbs like by the fourth or fifth time that I went through this, like when, when you have these breakups of these like really distinct sections, it's like, this is important. Like, like here are five things that you need to know for this time right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I would say that the one with Avril trying to, trying to get a hold of, um, you know, quote unquote, Helen steepleys, um, journalistic office in, in, uh, Arizona, um, to kind of like figure out who this person is. Um, and you know, this like, that I think is like really trying to like piece together a lot of this novel. Mm -hmm. Um, like Avril's kind of momentum here is, is indicative of, of of what's going to happen in the, in the last, uh, 200 50 or so pages
0: okay yeah we're, we're definitely feeling people come together uh even this is like the second or third time we we've known these people were existing in pretty close geographical proximity but this is the second or third time now where wallace has explicitly stopped and been like here is where everybody is at in this exact moment which is also important considering how much the timeline jumps around in this like i think yep. I didn't realize until a bit in that literally, like, almost every time we saw Steeply and Meraith in Tucson, we were jumping back several months and viewing them all over the course of, like, a night. But um, I also I do love just the scene here of the fact that Hal wants to be alone and comically more and more people just wander into the room with him. And
1: he's he's just sitting there like trying to be as disgusting as possible with this huge plug of Kodiak <laughs> in his cheek, like spitting into a trash can, and everyone's just like, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs>
0: uh, Hal thinks of the film uh, Blood Nun, one of one of James's only profitable mainstream films. Turns out he made a few of these. When abstractedness didn't scratch his itch, he leaned extreme and over the top parody. The best being the knight wears a sombrero. A footnote tells us it was an actual exercise in self-hate that James made regarding his failures at sponsorship and spirituality at Boston AA. Uh, More and more students sit down to the point that everyone but Hal is 100% absorbed in the film. So the film is about a tough biker chick saved by a brutal beating and raping by a nun who was also a biker chick. She herself then goes on a search to save a street girl like herself, finding a punk rock girl covered in burns, possibly from a freebase explosion. We see the punk rock girl go from drug addict rebel to two friend and reading scripture. Bridget Boone notes that there might be an allegory of a girl exchanging one habit, quote, for another habit, quote, the nuns. Hal barely pays attention, thinking instead of a different himself film where female executives dominate the male ones the public considered it a lampoon when in fact it was a deeply depressive episode where james had changed careers and was feeling anhedonic and took a year off to drink wild turkey and watch trash tv for a year this was the period of time where he met lyle
1: so so this is a great little throwaway that like that matters okay <laughs> so so when you uh, if if you go back to endnote 24 which is the insufferably long filmography okay. of of all of the films and you look up low temperature civics, Mm -hmm. Um, the description of the film and it, and this one also stars Madam psychosis. Um, And it's described as a Weiler parody in which four sons, and then he lists the actors um, intrigue for control of a sandwich bag conglomerate, which is a total throwaway joke to the year of glad Mm after their CEO father has an ecstatic encounter with death played by Madame Psychosis mm. and becomes irreversibly catatonic.
0: Hmm.
1: And so it's like, it's this throwaway where it, it really does position Joelle or Madame Psychosis as like this figure of death that can literally mm. make you catatonic. Um, and so it's it's this little breadcrumb to Mm -hmm. to lead us to what what the actual entertainment what the Sama's dot is doing to people as this is going on
0: right it's definitely an allusion to that i mean we have that we know that she appears in the infinite jest film the entertainment but obviously there's been a lot set up of just how hard it is to look away from her and how entrancing she is i i do love the detail that uh how keeps going on what the public thought of the film and it seems like all the films like actually it was his disappointment at himself not being able to you know move ahead in life and that seems to be the inspiration for all of his films Is like he kind of hated himself and that's what this was yep <laughs> um joelle van dyne is starting to id more with speakers she just attended a cocaine anonymous meeting which are not terribly popular due to their niche drug but she went because it was in the same hospital where she just visited Gately. He is unconscious in the trauma wing, not doing well. Joella is struggling with feelings for him as all AA groups insist to avoid relationships for the first year of sobriety. That quitting drugs is supposed to tear tear out a hole in your psyche, which should be filled with your higher power and not a relationship. A common idiom is addicts don't have relationships. They take hostages. Ain't that the goddamn truth. We mentioned it before. That's the 13th step dating somebody in AA. Exactly uh, the speaker, no, and, and, oh god
1: someone one of your previous guests actually mentioned this scene, like the peanut butter scene mm-hmm. um and this speaker's story about like you know riding the missile often to often to paycheck devastation and financial mm-hmm. ruin and family mm-hmm. falling apart, and like coming back to his his apartment and and finding this like scraped out thing of peanut butter and just how how tragic this story is. And this, this little narrative in here is like, it just cuts me. Like we've talked about the gut punches and this is one of them for me, where it's like these people, and, and, and it also has the optimism of like AA and, and NA and CA and, and all of these fellowships, like are able to bring some of these people who seem like they are you know, never gonna make it and then mm-hmm. and bring them to some semblance of like being able to help.
0: Right. OK, um, so, yeah, the speaker gives his rock bottom, did a lot of cocaine, though his wife and daughter suffered for it. His wife would come back to him, would come meet him on payday at the check cash in place to make sure he didn't spend his check on Coke. This is actually a very similar story that my grandmother would tell me about her mother sending her to grab her father's paychecks so he wouldn't spend it all at the bar. That's right. Runs in the family. Um he decided to just buy a small amount of Coke to get him by and spend the rest in, on rent and groceries. Sure, that always works out. Just a just a pinch. Just a pinch to keep me, you know, not trying to get fucked up. Just get a little loose. Um, <laughs> uh, instead, he got caught up with friends and blew all the money till there was none left. Came home to a final notice rent slipped from the Boston Housing Authority and saw the empty peanut butter and realized just how low he had driven his family to go that this was all the food they had. So he left home and went to a shelter and demanded a meeting at cocaine anonymous. And he's now been clean for 224 days. The irony of his first day at the shelter was the only food was the same peanut butter. His wife and daughter had had to subsist on Joel feels
1: that's how how we found higher power.
0: (laughs) There you go. Joelle feels moved and feels the first genuine urges to stay clean forever. She wants to stay straight, whether Gately ends up back on Demerol or rejects her or gets mad. He can't see her face. Joelle notes. This is the first time she considered possibly wanting to show her face to anyone. The date is November 14th. So yeah, a lot of, uh, exposition there. I'm very curious what happens with Joelle and Gately. We get another instance where like, one, one, one character's, uh, one character's motivation is kind of being expressed by another where by watching this person, she's finally feeling she's, she's IDing. And now she's like, you know, I think I do actually just want to stay clean forever, which I get that from some people. Cause like even the few things I've had to quit, it's always been like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll probably be the guy though. I'll still need one or two every now and again. I can't imagine not doing it forever. And that first time where you're like, actually, I think I'm done with this is mind blowing. Yep.
1: No, and it, this, this just to, to harken back where we started, the, the end note in this section where they talk about, cause over and over they they refer, you know, through Joelle's eyes, she refers to this speaker as colored. Um, and it has like this really kind of problematic language. Mm. And it it's almost the first time where like Dave Foster Wallace really addresses that overtly where he's like, Oh, by the way, the language that I'm using in this section is through Joelle's eyes, which is, is problematic, but mm-hmm. she is the paragon of racial sensitivity in comparison to Gately. <laughs> and right, it kind of right. harkens back to some of the, those instances of really terrible language that we've had to deal with in this book.
0: Yeah. And it, it's um, easier doing it with her where, uh, obviously where gately is just straight up using the n-word but Joel, it's more it's it's more like a a term that has fallen out of fashion so it doesn't have quite the i i feel like the n-word thing is a little bit like getting punched in the nose like it's the only thing you can see because it packs that big a punch whereas colored you're yep. kind of like hey yeah oh, oh okay we can get around they're trying you know try you know what their heart is um Okay, to wrap it up here, we are back to One Tough Nun. The young punk girl is found dead. One Tough Nun goes on a rampage, certain the street thugs she escaped got to her, and destroys them all with Nun keto only to make a shocking revelation. Dun dun dun. It was the Mother Superior that killed her. There's a whole thing. It's a little bit of the Marathon Steeply like, is he a triple agent or a quadruple agent? Like, does he know that I know that he knows that I know? that I know that he knows he's only trying to trick me into thinking he's doing this. wherein in uh, how the Mother Superior killing this girl undoes the whole chain of command where one tough nun was trying to fulfill. She wanted to repay the older nun. She wanted to repay the older nun who saved her by saving another, but now that the nun who saved her turned out evil, yada, yada, <laughs> yada, we, we get it. Um, this culminates
1: I uh, know the, the, the hilarious part about this is like, it really is this, it's like this spiral of writing, but it, it is this critique of like the ideas that we have about, about 12-step recovery. Like the only thing that you can do to deserve the thing you've gotten is pass it on. Mm-hmm. But what happens if the person who gave it to you fucks up? and like so many new people in recovery like that's the big worry like uh, this isn't going to work because it's such a tenuous chain of of quote-unquote savedness and I love that it's this like really complex spiral like writing that when you really boil it down it's just like get over it like if you're saved you're saved
0: (laughs) right yeah there, there does seem to be uh I noticed the things like that. It's, it's a lot of people getting tied up in the purity of a thing. I I personally think one of the best revel, one of the best revelations you can have as a young person is no matter, no matter how good things are, something dirty probably had to happen to get you there. Like nothing's pure. Um, trying to trying to think of a direct example of this i I just remember a dumb one i remember i was like a teenager and uh, i called my girlfriend and my brother who was younger than me started giving me shit like you use this like high-pitched voice with her like oh hi that's not really why are you being so phony and it's like well because it would be a little bit fucked up if i talked to this girl that i was having affection with like i talked like hey what's up baby you want to fuck later like it's not it's not dishonesty this is how life is it's 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 the phony bullshit of like uh Holden Caulfield and all that where you know just they're all a bunch of phonies like you're the only one obsessed with this dude and you're very alone and not having a good time maybe take a note (laughs) um where are we okay this culminates in the nuns having been running a drug ring from the rectory and one tough nun getting the shit kicked out of her by all the nuns, including the one that saved her, only for that nun to come to her senses just before one tough nun is decapitated by the Mother Superior, bashing Mother soups with a crucifix. She squares up with the Mother Superior before just dropping the hatchet, leaving, buying a motorcycle, and riding off into the night. I'm very curious if David Foster has lived long enough to see the film, uh, grindhouse, because this does kind of feel a little bit like the machete over the top of the whole thing.
1: It's, it's funny. Cause he actually, in this book, he refers to, uh, at several points, he, he refers to Tarantino mm-hmm. and like, not liking the, what does he call him? A schlockmeister, mm-hmm. um, like a gore, gory film. And, and, you know, the, the film that I kept thinking of when I'm reading this description is um Boondock Saints. Mm. Like like this over-the-top choreographed, ridiculous action movie with with just this like punch you in the forehead symbology attached to it. Mm. Um and you know, and it's it's a it's a I'm losing my train of thought, but it it's it is this critique of like what what is the value in our entertainment and does it have to does it have to have this like multi-tiered sense of meaning or can we just have something where a whole bunch of shit blows up and enjoy the entertainment aspect of that
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and 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 sometimes they can be both and i think that's where like the whole time i'm reading this description it it literally like feels like a south park cartoon to me like it's ridiculous and -hmm. then and then they move on to this like um the the latin in it contraria sunt complementa um (laughs) the heaviness of which makes hal cringe so severely it's boone who has to supply the translation um (laughs) (laughs) and when you look it up that just all that really means is like opposites are complementary and it and and again, I'm probably reading way too much into this, but that mm. was the that was the personal motto of Niels Bohr, who is oh. one of the fathers of of quantum mechanics. Mm. And so it again, it's it's sort of like it's it's the David Foster Wallace like masturbatory intellectualism, um, to like <laughs> have all these have all these little references. Mm. But I think that um especially with the obsession with time in all of this like what time you know even from the previous films like Mm. that idea of of like entanglement and all of this stuff is entangled in in kind of almost a quantum way Mm. um is is again it's probably like over reading but all of these things have like these little hooks that go out into other disciplines and other manners of thinking so whether it's 12-step or film or the hard sciences like all of it is getting fucking messy mm-hmm. in literally like a
0: i, I look at like not n- <laughs> not not everything needs to be like the main point like i'm a big fan of like peppering just peppering in little details like that that just kind of they they they're like a garnish like it it's nice to have there like i had uh Oh God! Um, so one of my other side ventures right now is I'm writing a weekly humorous wrestling recap for a company called AEW, and I notice like I'm starting to slip Infinite Jest references into that, and I it, it, the whole purpose is if no, if nobody notices then that's fine, but the one or two people who do understand that it's gonna blow their fucking minds and that's what i love those little little details like what did i i think I, I i put something mexican and then i said north american and then i put o-n-a-n something i don't know i'm i'm hoping i'm hoping somehow tying infinite jest in with lucha libre is going to make somebody's day
1: <laughs> you know there, there's got to be a venn diagram out there of you know professional wrestling and infinite jest fans there's got to be some sliver out there
0: you would be surprised i mean i gotta (laughs) so one of the ways i promote this podcast is i will literally just go on twitter i will look up recent mentions of infinite jest and i will just comment and link the podcast and i found one recently where it was like a parody account of a famous wrestler but he was talking about infinite jest and i started talking with him he's like yeah that's really fucking weird i'm going to go look up everything you've ever made like thank you that's <laughs> there you go you
1: you found your you found your your ideal audience
0: <laughs> yes exactly all right well those are my notes for this week thank you jeff what how, how are you feeling you're feeling good about this whole process hell yeah that
1: was fun thanks for yeah. thanks for inviting some random dude from from colorado onto your podcast <laughs>
0: it's fun it's fun just shooting the shit and philosophizing about this if we were if we were sitting in Here's the thing: If we were having the same discussion in a coffee shop, we'd look like a couple of assholes. Instead, we're putting it out to the world, and I'm sure we still look a little bit like assholes. But it was fun. It's exactly it's, this is the this is the appropriate place for navel gazing and talking about 24 year old books and time travel. Why not? So you might as well throw a little corn in there too. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Wrestling, literature, new metal. That's right. We did it all for the bookie. That was terrible, even go. for me. Um, <laughs> Jeff, tell us again where we can find you online.
1: Uh, again, at uh, Tall on Twitter, and that's about it.
0: All right. Uh, I'm going to put trademark pending for I did it all for the bookie, because I might. That, that's a terrible name for a podcast, and it might need to exist. So I'm going to look at that um yep thanks for doing this end it like we end every episode i'm going to turn this off but you and i can keep talking for a minute thanks man you've been a great guest
1: thanks man